tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much. This is the first episode of the year 2023, so I hope everyone had a blessed Christmas or continuing to have a blessed Christmas season, seeing as we're still in it, and um, a good year so far. Too, a little early to tell, but of course we, we hope you are having a good one. And we're here with Zach Neubauer, president of EPAC. Zach's been on the show a couple times. Um, yeah, so delighted to have one of the first guests, I think, right? Yeah, you, you were you were one of um like our episode four or five or something, and then we we had you on like early fall, I think. Um, yeah, sounds right. What did we do? Oh, you talked about like um evangelical the the evangelical tradition of Ang- within Anglicanism. Yeah, a lot about Charles Simeon. We ended up talking about Simeon, him a lot, so. Simeon was the main topic, and yeah, uh, a little bit about John Stott and yeah, um yeah, it was a fun episode. I think that was um. It's one of our more popular ones too, by the way. So uh, yeah. we had some hits. So, uh, but yeah, we appreciate everyone's listenership. Uh, just to, I don't do this enough, but for um, our listeners, our listeners, just a reminder to go ahead and uh, give us a review or and or rating on Apple Podcast, Spotify, however you listen to us, just because we appreciate the feedback and uh, you know how algorithms work. The more uh, ratings we get, the more. Uh, gets out there somehow i don't understand that stuff i didn't <laughs> who knows how it works but it works <laughs> i didn't go to school for that stuff so um, today we have a fun episode um we are talking about favorite books we've read over the past year um some of these books may be from this past year um you know we try to be relevant but uh <laughs> some of them may be far before 2022 none of my books spoiler are relevant they're not from 2022 but i'm joking because i would argue they are relevant but um so yeah i'm sitting in my office here at st michael's this is my first day on the job other than yesterday my first sunday it was a beautiful service um from what i heard i guess we had a lot of you know parishioners we haven't seen in a while uh kind of coming back because the new rector and so that's Great. exciting Great. um and i'm just excited uh excited about this and uh it's it's good so how you doing zach you're doing well. So blessings on this uh, new venture of yours. Congratulations on this this call. So thank you. I yeah. am in uh, I am in windy sorry. windy and chilly Northern California this morning. So the, the, all that rain came through over the weekend and uh, had some flood warnings and whatnot. And uh, it's drying up a little bit, but getting ready to start all over again. So sitting at my uh, office at St. Clements in Rancho Cordova, California. So well. Uh... Yeah, and and so your um kind of remind me of your role. You're you're associate there, right? And you're I I'm actually the uh, the interim priest in charge. So okay. I, I am the 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 only clergy here on staff. Um, but I'm serving interim, and it's it's also a part time interim. So it's a it's a unique arrangement, but one that I uh, came up with. So it's not it's not for any any lack of willingness on my part. Uh, so it's 
but it's good. It's an interim position. And if you want to move to the Diocese of Northern California and take a position, this would be a good one to take come probably May or so they're going to be looking again. So uh, it's just not, not something that's going to work out for me long-term, but um, it well, I know we have clergy deserves to work out for somebody. So, yeah, I know we have, I imagine we have uh, some clergy listeners. I imagine I wouldn't be surprised. That's half the audience. <laughs> so um, <laughs> so y'all heard that there is possible uh, new vocation for uh, in the mix. So um, for you get a hold of Zach Neubauer uh, or yeah. Email the podcast. We'll put you to him. Um, put you through to yeah. him. So uh, let's go through these books. So um, what books are you reading? Uh, well, I was going to have you go first, uh, or unless it's up to you, I, I could go first. Uh, we're 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 going to be sharing. Um, for Sorry, but I, I it froze up on my end, so I'm not sure what happened there. So I apologize. Oh, what just happened? I was just saying, giving the listeners what we're about to be getting into. What this episode's about. Uh, Three. We each picked three books we liked. Um, I did. I already said that, didn't I? I'm uh. Well, just to reiterate, we're going over three books. Zach's going over three he liked. I'm going over three he liked. Um, from uh that we've read over the past year, whether they're published from the past year or not. Um, and then we're going to share one we disliked. Um, and so um, and so uh, let's dive right in. Uh. Zach, do you want to share share one you one you liked? Yeah, so so one I I liked. Uh, it's called "He Descended to the Dead." It's an e subtitled "An Evangelical Theology of Holy Saturday" by uh, Matthew Emerson. He is at uh, Oklahoma Baptist University. It's uh, printed by IVP Academic, and this actually I think won uh, Christianity Today's like book of the year. It was pretty high up there in twenty twenty. Um, so it came came highly recommended, and his his kind of um, contention is that as uh, he when he says evangelicals, he's saying kind of non non denominational evangelicals, more kind of folks in the Baptist non liturgical traditions, but that uh, that we don't we don't know what to do with Holy Saturday. Um, you have where we can get along with Good Friday and Easter definitely makes sense, but. But what is Holy Saturday? What does it mean that, that Christ descended to the dead? And um, he takes on, um, looks at what this means in terms of scripture. Um, he has the biblical, historical, theological foundations for it. And looks at what it means, um, examines the, the verses from uh, First Peter, for example. I mean, Jesus ministering to the spirits. What does that mean? Um, those different different things and then takes a look at how this has been understood throughout church history and uh part of what i thought was was really interesting was he he contends that um it's calvin who who kind of tweaks this understanding of uh what christ did between his death and his resurrection in a way that's now very familiar for a lot of people so uh, calvin's contention was that part of um that, that Christ was was suffering in his in his death essentially um, that that he descended into hell and so he's getting he's uh, a day a day's worth of hell is is finished is the end of his uh, suffering whereas uh, throughout most of church history there was an understanding that um, Holy Saturday was a triumphal time or at least a, a restful time I mean Christ is is uh, 
having a sabbatical, his, his Sabbath uh, in that time. And so I just thought it was um, something I hadn't really thought about very much as to how what I how I viewed it, um, especially having come from uh, non-denominational evangelical traditions and um, realized how much of my assumptions um, were, were wrong. <laughs> really. So uh, it's a lot. It gives something um it, it makes a great basis. I mean, next time you're preaching at an Easter vigil or uh, even a Good Friday service, uh, maybe take a look at it and and see how he how he unpacks that and um, maybe help you see it in a fresh new way. Yeah. Um, when it comes to Holy Saturday, you know that's that all is in its own way kind of a neglected day because uh, when I think about it, um, even in the like the mainstream Episcopal world there there's we don't really know what to do and I include myself in there I mean I was literally just talking about um Holy Week I know it's like not there's plenty of things with someone earlier who was at the church earlier and um you know we were talking about uh what what's usually been the norm here and then Saturday, um, uh, there's been different things on Saturday. And, and it's one of those days, it's not firmly like understood what you exactly do. Do you do a vigil Saturday night? But that's more of like, I see that as more like uh, a prologue to Easter Sunday rather than a meditation of Saturday. Yeah. Um, and I've seen when I served at the cathedral, you know, a few years ago, we had a Holy Saturday service early on in the morning and it was it was very much a continuation of uh i guess you said in that theme calvin you know that it's a continuation of jesus's suffering and um so yeah it's like what do you do with holy saturday you know <laughs> yeah and I, I think too um yeah I, like the parishes i've been at hasn't been a real strong tradition of, of what that is or what that means or how it's celebrated um one one thing that I've kicked around um, as uh, as a kind of a pastoral way of thinking is um, there's I mean there's a, there's an, an emphasis often on having a vigil um, a, a Easter vigil and in all the contexts I've ever been at that happens that's happened I mean <laughs> I mean the sun is maybe starting to set on Saturday Saturday afternoon um, so. So, which can, I mean, that 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 feels a lot different than very early on Saturday morning or Sunday morning, Easter morning. But um, I think there's, uh, it seems to me that pastorally there's sometimes a disconnect between the idea of wanting to have an Easter vigil service and then and then what is Sunday morning as well and. And one of the things that I've played with, um, haven't, haven't been able to put into practice, but an idea that I've played with is um, making the making the case to the vestry or whatnot that an Easter vigil service is for is for the parish, uh, whereas the Easter morning service should be more could should be or could be more about um, about the folks who only show up at Christmas Eve or an Easter or or visitors or spent. I mean, so. That's a good point. Yeah, which is something I, I think there's uh, I, I get that I feel that challenge a lot in a lot more so 
in the Episcopal Church than in other traditions that I've been part of is that um, we have we have this incredible evangelistic opportunity on Easter Sunday, but there's a wanting there seems to be a wanting of to hold on to it for for ourselves almost. Um, we want to kind of have the experience for ourselves, and and maybe experiences that aren't as uh, visitor friendly, uh, for example. And so, yeah, the vigil is such an unusual in comparison to any service you would come to throughout the year. It's so unusual the, the it's dark and then you have all these readings it, it, for a foreign, for a visitor. Um, yeah, that would be, you're really diving right into like ancient liturgical, uh, you know, type of environment. Yeah, and and especially, I mean, assuming that that you probably won't have, I mean, I've I've never had somebody, a non a non regular attender attend a, a vigil service that I've been part of. It's always the, and, and I mean, and in the situations I've been in, it's not even, it's it's the real, it's the real hardcore. It's the it's the, it's the, uh, it's the ten ten percent, the twenty percent who are really want to be part of that service, which. Um, I think is is fine is great um but then saying let let this service be the weird service and and let's have easter morning can be more uh more something that we can uh share maybe bring the threshold the bar bar down a little bit lower or make it a little bit more accessible because that's when people are going to show up and so on maybe an easter vigil sermon is 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 dense and and uh is real meaty and and kind of thinking through all these different themes that you're having in the readings whereas the sunday morning service is more evangelistic um i mean not not to contrast i mean evangelistic i know what you mean it's it's, theological but but very uh outsider oriented instead of insider oriented it's the tv opportunity easter sunday morning right versus the vigil um (laughs) Yeah, uh, so to speak. Um, I know what you mean. I, I was going to say, uh, I guess I was unaware of what, how the church viewed. I mean, you mentioned how the church viewed Holy Saturday, at least for so long up until Calvin, as like a Sabbath, which I never even like that. I never even uh, knew that, um, that it was seen that way. I'm just unfamiliar. It must have been while you read the book, it must have been. Um, uh, you must it must have been informative on the history oh, definitely. Of the world, right? Yeah. About how the church yeah. saw it over the years, right? Yeah, and and I mean and based and the, the big question comes down to is I mean the, uh, I mean he he uses the phrase in the creeds. I mean he descended to the dead. And then um that's the and the, so what is what is the dead? Um is that is that Hades? Is that Sheol? Is that hell? Um and that and that's where the that's where kind of Calvin especially makes the transition that um, the early early church up uh, up until Calvin really understood it as uh, as the the dead being a place of of, of soul slumber of, of sleep of 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 anticipation um, whereas with Calvin and 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 that's where you have this other I mean it wasn't Calvin who it wasn't only Calvin's fault. Calvin gets played for enough stuff, but um, the, it's the question of, did he descend to the dead or did he descend to hell? Um, and, and while we use those two terms 
very interchangeably sometimes um you, you can't and and if you if you kind of pull those two apart um it seems that the the scriptural picture is much more about jesus descending to the dead um which yeah when it's, start uh, saying it's, it's, it's the seventh day of the week it's it's the sabbath it's he's resting and then the new creation starts up on the morning of the eighth day and when when did it go i'm just wondering what way you know because the apostles creed comes about second century and I don't know, we don't really, I know there's all kinds of scholarship on the origins of how that came together. And it's, there's just a lot up in the air. There's lots of like, we don't know. Um, yeah. But I wonder, I mean, it seems very early on, there was this, this view that Jesus descended to, to hell, right? Is that, that's because it was changed. And from what I've always seen in the different forms, it goes to the moderns, the modern versions, it's, it's changed to the dead. So um, yeah, and I think I think his it's it's been a little while since I've I've read it, but I think um, his are part of his argument is what does kind of what does hell mean, um, and so so it's I mean it's similar if if you're a, uh, an Anglican and understand kind of what Thomas Cranmer and others were doing at the time of Reformation. Um, I mean Cranmer gets rid of gets rid of altars and they're now tables and and gets rid of the mass. It's now communion and. And uh, I think it's Colin Buchanan, Bishop Colin Buchanan, who makes this argument that the, the other word that you would seem to want to get rid of would be priest, uh, because priest priest implies a um, sacrificial type of sacrificial uh, system, and and yet and yet Cranmer keeps priest because he says, well, it's it's just the English word presbyter. I mean, it's just smashed together, right. and and so it's kind of two words that can what one word that can mean two different things um and so his emerson's con contention is that for most of church history um jesus is understood as as descending to the dead um and because in a way hell hell doesn't exist until christ is christ dies and is resurrected um because it's he's it's well, everyone is in Sheol. You're kind of in in good Sheol or bad Sheol, uh, good Hades or, or bad Hades. Either you're there waiting, waiting with anticipation or waiting with dread. But there's you're still waiting for something to happen. Yeah. Um, it's not a it's not an e eternal place. Um, and that's I mean, that, see, um, N.T. Wright makes makes that argument the other way often that we we get confused about what heaven is all about. Um, I think Chad Bird wrote something this week too. Um, we we get confused about that heaven is the destination. Um, and no, heaven is the heaven is the uh, the waiting room, um, and the new heavens and the new earth is the destination. Yeah. And so that's a similar kind of the reverse argument that Hades um, is is not is the waiting room for either judgment or salvation. Mm. And so what happens on Holy Saturday is Christ. Christ descends to the dead, and um, and announces victory for those who have who have placed their faith in, in Yahweh, and and announces judgment to those who have not, and and that's what he he contends. I mean, uh, Emerson contends that the the preaching that Christ does um, in on, on Holy Saturday to the to the dead isn't salvific preaching. It's it's not. Um, 
it's not giving it's not giving a second chance to those it's preaching as proclamation this has now happened um and and then the the faithful to their reward and the the uh, the unjust to their reward so the um <laughs> so this could segue into either one of the of two books that i like okay go for it well you mentioned cram and reformation that could go into my the the book faith alone what the reformers saw why so matters well my my other my other two sure. books are both about that so so well, okay. those two, well, they'll, they'll all go together at the end so go well, with the other one we're just talking about eschatology so i'll go ahead and go. Go to my oh, and and give us the the title and author again for our listeners of that book you just spoke about he it's called he descended to the dead an evangelical theology of holy saturday and it's by matthew emerson and it was um like i said i think it was 2020 it, it got a lot of um 2019 but I, th I think it might have been christianity today's book of the year or in one of their categories one of their categories yeah i know um i know they, they do have like an academic theology category they have all kinds of categories but yeah. I, I heard that book i heard of that book um, and that it was good but um thanks for recommending it um yeah uh, so on the on the note picking up where i left off on the note of eschatology that leads me into the next book the oxford handbook on eschatology so it sounds like a very academic heady title um but i'll preface this by saying uh in my own life and i've really grown more and more interested in the topic of eschatology um uh because i've realized how like central it is um to the christian faith how how like fundamentally central central is to being a christian um yeah like when you when we worship in in the liturgy um once i really started to i guess think more about eschatology and and read things on eschatology and and uh i realized uh, you can see you can hear the words from the liturgy in worship in a whole new in a whole new not a whole yeah. new light but it, it it's fuller fuller grasp of what this is because it's the complete orientation of what we're about when as christians um so uh and it was time so and i'm kind of cheating on this book because the, so the oxford handbook on eschatology uh it's uh like all oxford handbooks it's a big thick meaty volume of numerous like it's and it's an academic work um i found this one just very fascinating and enjoyable to read um and and they're, they're individual es they're individual essays right yeah they're individual essays yeah. and um uh and i i'm cheating a little bit because i bought this in 2020 i believe i started to read some of it because it's not a book you have to set sit down and read straight through it's a reference book right um and I believe I started to get into it in 2020. Uh, I read, I read a bunch of it in 2021. I used it for something. I something from it I used for something. I don't even can't even recall what it was. And then recently, during this past Advent of 2022, uh, I pulled it out again. Uh, it wasn't for anything I was teaching. But it was for something else. That's right. The year before 2021, the reason I used it because I was writing a term paper where I needed to see look up some stuff about how theologian how in her history how christians have approached the book of revelation but actually it was for a sermon in advent this past year 
that I pulled this out again. And uh, so, but, but just like to define the terms for listeners, of course, eschatology is a fancy theolo theology word for what Christians believe about the end of all things, uh, what basically Zach was referring to when we got to the end of his, um, uh, his talk on his book. But, um, you know, pop culture, media, literature, uh, they've, of course, they've taken on this topic uh, in, in sensational, wild directions, like yeah. in series. <laughs> uh you know because it can be a scary thing you know when we oh yeah to think about the apocalypse but um but of course for us christians it involves the second coming of christ uh the culmination of history not only death but rebirth and so and, and renewal and uh consummation of this world and so um it's a it's a hopeful thing uh really and so you know i mean if you're a liturgical christian like i said uh pay attention next time and worship to see how much uh, what we say and what we pray uh, it so much of it um, is oriented toward this notion of a future uh, in the Eucharistic prayers, especially, I mean, it's a foretaste yeah. of the heavenly banquet. So, um, so there's basically an Oxford handbook for like every topic under the sun. And there was like, this had like a star studded this, this Oxford handbook, especially had like, it was like a star studded cast. So you had like, um, uh, Richard Baucom wrote a chapter in it. Okay. Uh, Wolfhart Pannenberg wrote a chapter. This is back yeah. in live. I think this it was early two thousands, mid two thousands when this one was published. Um, I had a few names written down here. Uh, Robert Jewett did a chapter on, um, interestingly, on eschatology and pop culture. Uh, okay. uh, William Lane Craig did a chapter. David Bentley Hart did a chapter. Rosemary Ruther did the feminism chapter. Uh, okay. So it was just, uh, you know, lots of kind yeah. of big names in theology world. My favorite chapters from it uh, were I wrote a Benedict uh, Viviana, who's a Jesuit theologian, had heard of him before, but he did a uh, chapter on es called Eschatology and the Quest for the Historical Jesus, uh, which was interesting. It was kind of a uh, overview of like uh, all the different quests of the historical Jesus, you know, in 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 modern critical scholarship, huh. like, and and of course how so much of it went off base when eschatology was yeah out when when they lose the fact that that was central to the mind of Jesus that was yeah because you have to measure you, that's that's the, the the measuring rod I mean where where does this lead what does this right. If you follow so, this out, if you follow out this way of thinking into into the 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 the, the resurrection and whatnot, where does that leave you? Yeah, right. And um, and basically, if you don't have an eschatological Jesus, he turns into uh, uh, basically a nineteenth-century uh, bourgeois values uh, liberal yep. Jesus. Of course, that's that was the big criticism of the 19th century quest for um and so uh 20th century comes and there's uh this fascination with eschatology in fact a lot of it comes from that historical jesus i mean you and whether you see it in liturgical scholarship uh systematic theologian it it it's really all because of the correction that um albert schweitzer made to like the historical gotcha. it's just fascinating how it's all connects there the 
you know. Um, but and another good chapter was Gerhard Sauter, uh, Sauter I think it's Sauter's uh, chapter on eschatology in the Protestant tradition. Um, that was really interesting. And but I would say the most helpful chapter on that, the one I think that most practically applies for um, preaching and teaching um, is Timothy Weber's uh, chapter on millennialism in there, because that he explores you know, pre-millennialism, what it is, uh, amillennialism or amillennialism, post-millennialism, even other older traditions of, uh, was it preterist, preterist? Yeah, preterist. Preterist, um, uh, historicist. He goes into like, he defines like all the different ways the book of Revelation has been approached, you know, is it something, is it describing things that have already happened? Is it describing a future thing? Is it a combination of both? Is it allegory? Is it literal? All those things. It's a very helpful chapter. Um, uh, I've used, um, and I, honestly, I think this, but I mean, if you're going to own any Oxford handbook, because they cost a, a, a few dollars, <laughs> yeah. this, and if, and if you're a pre preacher, it, uh, if, you know, pre preacher, Christian educator, whatever, or, or, teach at your church this would be the one to have i think just because um these are always the big questions it's always the book of yeah revelation Did i say the yeah. book of reformation earlier the book of revelation i don't think so yeah. i think it's a freudian it. slip um this, this as long as it's not revelations <laughs> yeah, not revelations yeah but i mean that's always you know sometimes it's the elephant in the room it's the big thing people yeah. don't think about yeah. what ultimately is to be uh and this it, book was just helpful on that. I'm so, even that chapter alone by Timothy Weber. Um, so yeah, I uh, yeah Oxford Handbook on Eschatology. Numerous contributors, of course. I think Jerry Walls was the editor of it, um, but very good. Um, I would yeah any. It's, it's really a I would say a must have. Like if there's five theology books, someone must have. Uh, that would be like one of them. Um, yeah, and and it's you know, like I said, it is such an important topic because I I find I mean, you, you do always have somebody who who either wants wants to teach or wants you to teach like the adult ed on Revelation. Like, yep, yep. Let's sit us down and explain how this. Like, you're gonna be you're gonna be the the first clergy person to explain this all to us. Um, yeah. But even, but even when that doesn't happen, that that question of ultimate destiny is is with. I mean, was with us all the time, and I, and I find, um, I mean, I what what we um, oh, I was doing, I did a class on N.T. Wright's "Surprised by Hope," mm -hmm. uh, which I've already mentioned once. So I'll try not to mention it too many more times. But uh, this this past year, and and that's talking about, uh, I mean, it, um, Wright's term is life after life after death. I mean, what what happens after heaven, um, the new creation, and and. And I find, I mean, especially, I think it's interesting that there was apparently the essay with about uh, eschatology and popular culture, I, because I think there's so much, I mean, part, part of it is, is the church's fault for not teaching on these things like we should, but at the same time, there's so much that just kind of seeps into us from other places about, about these things. And so we get these ideas about what what life after death is is all about or the apocalypse or these things and that can really that are really pastorally harmful um and mm -hmm. and people don't acknowledge they, they don't realize 
sometimes they don't even realize that they have these ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. And then when you kind of start unpacking, well, what does scripture teach? And, and they kind of like, oh, okay, well, I've always thought this. Um, and, and, and that was what I found is I'm, I'm always, um, whenever I get into a conversation about around eschatology, I'm, I'm always surprised by at least one person who, who has some pretty, pretty goofy views about their beliefs. Oh, but like you said, it's everywhere in the culture. Um, well, yeah. in the popular Christian culture that at least the, that once was, it's, it's begun to wane, of course, but yeah, left, yeah, but, left behind yeah. series came out of that. Um, and but even less, even less than that, I think, um, because that's, I mean, that's, that's true. And I, I, I mean, I grew up in, in that culture. I mean, I'm very, yeah, that's, but, but even just, um, I, I remember just trying to explain this one, like, our bodies will be physically resurrected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most and, people have a play Plato view. That yeah, and and she just her. couldn't she just couldn't wrap her mind around that. And then even even when she found it was kind of like okay, well, well maybe, but then it was well I don't want my body to be resurrected. I don't. <laughs> yes. This is not this is not. But she was very was, she was very serious. It yeah. wasn't just kind of what's our heavenly bodies going to look like. I mean, right. it's it was her she just felt so much shame and so much kind of disgust and, and frustration with her body right. um, that she didn't she didn't want to be bodily resurrected she would rather be a spirit and just yeah. floating around and, and so and, and wouldn't i mean for all of us wouldn't is there is some type of uh seeming freedom that that that's that comes along with that thought of not being limited anymore because yeah. we that think was, that was part of limited yeah. right and so just to be able to to be a spirit it seems like um those limitations are now taken off us it's it's very yeah i, I can see how it, it can be like a uh you know something you would desire but um but yeah i mean like you said it's it's yes our bodies are resurrected um no not in the but th those things that we th that those things that we feel the limitations the shame whatever those those matter we think now but yeah it's um but yeah a lot of people um yeah they have the plato view um yeah and uh this i mean i i when i uh and one second i hear someone uh uh saying something i'm gonna i'm gonna do a lot of editing yep. on this episode, so. Uh, okay, I'm back. Cool. Um, I'd meant to mute, but uh, okay, <laughs> I have to do some editing. Um, and I know it's already two. Where are you at for time? I mean, I don't have a. I I I have. I mean, I just I have a lot to do, but I don't have any deadline. Uh, I mean, okay. Um, so. well, I don't want to steal all your time, but yeah. Um, anyways, back to yeah. A lot of people do have the the Plato view. Um, and even when I was teaching high schoolers, you know, we we it, they they really appreciate. I could tell them here when I, we would kind of go over that and why we actually, 
you know, and we, I would uh, tie it back to what do we do when we gather for chapel when we say the creed? I would start to yeah. say, we believe, oh, what's the line we, before we believe in the resurrection of the dead? I would start to say the line in the creed, and then I would, I would like pause and like, I'd, I'd like, all right, you say the rest. And they said, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the light came on. It's like, wow, this is something we say. We proclaim we believe every time yeah. together. What does that mean? Well, it means something very different from, you know, we're buried and we become worm food and then we're spirits yep. floating on. It's like our, our bodies are important um, and, and you know, they're not bad things. And they're, so, yeah. yeah. And that was, and that was for me, I mean, um, and, and N.T. Wright's book was where that like ball went off for me. But um, my, my reaction was the complete opposite of this, this woman, because I was, and, and I mean, I read his book. I mean, after, I guess I probably wasn't in seminary yet, but I mean, I did undergrad in, in kind of, I did a pre-seminary undergrad. I mean, I was, I was, I should have figured this out long before, before I did, but oh. I was, I was terrified of the idea of kind of the afterlife because that, that idea that I'd gotten in my head through pop culture and, and kind of lazy readings of scripture and whatnot, that, that disembodied kind of everlasting like it just it felt it felt overwhelming it was, it was like agoraphobic or something I mean it was and and then to um it was it was like oh like we will be bought physically bodily resurrected I mean not that I'm so attached to the one I got now I mean there's there's definitely room for upgrade uh, but <laughs> but it was our our life after death will have meaning and will not just will not just be a floating kind of free floating spirits named clouds on angels on clouds playing harps types of things. I mean, so, um, and, and then they run into somebody who had the completely opposite view of, no, I want to be just that drop of water in the vast ocean of eternity or whatever. I mean, um, yeah. yeah. Um, it's like star Wars. Like it's the, like, we're yeah. The, yeah. We're, uh, the, phantasm of obi-wan kenobi or something (laughs) i don't know if that's a good analogy but um so let's uh the book you the book you didn't like book i didn't like the dislikes yeah um so what one of so i i I read i i read a ton and i try to not only read books that i know in advance i'm gonna like i need to get better at that so when i come across one i don't like it's a real surprise but um not this time yeah, for my example, you. but they'll see. So let's get to, let's get into y'all into yours. So um, so so yeah. So the book I uh, was sorry. I'll just, so it's called uh, Earth Filled with Heaven. The subtitle is Finding Life in Liturgy, Sacraments, and Other Ancient Practices of the Church. Um, and so so I got I so I got to back up a little bit. So I, I, I kind of um, alluded to this a little bit. So I grew up in non-denominational churches, but very kind of dispensationalist. Um, we, we have charts for the end of time. We know exactly what's coming. Um, and, and everything did, everything didn't know, but you knew Yeah, everything's literal. Uh, um, and uh, we're just, some of us have dates for when it's going to happen. Um, and went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago as in my undergrad. And that is, um, historically has been a bastion of dispensationalism in in the u.s um uh you're the guy you referenced uh 
Tim LaHaye. Uh, so Jerry Jenkins, like the co-author of of the Left Behind series, for example, was a Moody alum and and donated large portions of those profits to to Moody. So they have a, I mean, they've they've been well well uh, benefited from from this dispensationalism and all that. Um, so so interestingly enough, I wouldn't expect that a book uh, about sacramental um, uh, sacramental theology and liturgy to be written by somebody from Moody Bible Institute or published. It's actually published by Moody Publishers. Um, the author's name is Aaron Damiani, who um, he was actually the, I forget what the term was, but he was the the resident director of the dorm that I lived in. Um, so I don't, I, I kept a pretty low profile. I recognize the name when I picked up the book, but I don't, I don't know him personally. Um, he's a ACNA, uh, Anglican Church in North America, priest in Chicago, a church planner. And what he, what he's done in, with this earth filled with heaven is it's written specifically to non-liturgical, non-denominational evangelicals, and a way of saying what would that, that you should really discover liturgy and you should discover um these ancient quote-unquote ancient practices of the church yeah are you still there i'm still here yeah okay sorry um and so so he lays out um a vision of what that what that might look like and so he's got a chapter on um, he's, he starts off by by talking about being in these non-denominational, especially mega churches for him, and realizing at some point that he he was he was ministering in them, was part of them, um, but he was just burned out and mm -hmm. and felt like he didn't really had never really experienced the idea of of come unto me, all you are heavy and weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um, right. And so he's experiencing this, this spiritual burnout and starts attending a uh, liturgical church in Chicago. And that experience of, of weekly communion and uh, the church calendar and what is just very uh, transformative for him and, and ends up as an Anglican and now an Anglican priest, Anglican church planner. So he talks about different things, talks about the Eucharist, baptism the calendar uh the liturgy um passing of the peace prayers of the people uh the mission going out at the at the end of the service go go in the name of christ that type of thing and and then what he calls scripture creeds and old prayers um so the confessing the creeds weekly using using written prayers and and whatnot as as what is what is that that is what is lacking in your mm -hmm. spiritual journey and if you kind of take these things on you will be you'll you'll feel you'll feel greater presence of god i mean all, all these things um and so it got me got me thinking as i was reading it like this sounds really familiar like where have i heard this <laughs> where have i heard this before and and realized that uh, i got somebody at my door sorry just, just a second you're good you're good So, yeah. so I so I realized um, I realized that this sounded very familiar. This kind of premise that he that Damiani was laying out that um, what what evangelicals need to discover is is liturgical practice and right. 
and all this. And um, it goes back to, I'm not, I'm not sure directly, I'm not sure if it was kind of on his radar or his intention. And my guess is it probably is not, but in the, um, and this is a brand new book. I mean, this came out um, this like in August, I think I actually got an advanced copy uh, because if you go to confessinganglicans.com, um, that's a blog that I participate in and uh, there'll be a book review probably before this uh, goes live. But um, that I wrote about it, but it, I think it ties into a much older book um, written in the early uh, early mid 1980s, Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail: uh, Why Evangelicals Are Attracted to to the Liturgical Church by Robert E. Weber, um, mm -hmm. and and that book um, is now is now about 40 years old. Um, a guy named Gillis Harp, who is a professor at um, Grove City College in Pennsylvania and attends the Anglican Parish there. Just wrote a wrote a piece on Modern Reformation's uh, website about about uh, Weber's book and uh, kind of looking back at at that over the forty years. And Weber is someone who taught at Wheaton College. Um, it's kind of a sister sister college in a lot of ways to Moody. Um, he was a professor there and found himself being attracted to more liturgical, uh, he grew up Baptist, mm -hmm. more liturgical settings, ended up in the Episcopal Church, um, and and then from there on out was very much a champion of why liturgy and, and these things were important and, mm -hmm. and what was, and then and, and there's an attraction to to them for evangelicals, um, non-denominational evangelicals, and but I think the, so. The reason I didn't I didn't care for Damiani's book um, isn't because it. Um, see, C.S. Lewis talks about when you're when you're judging a piece of art or literature, you have to judge it based off of what it's trying to do. You can't kind of decide that you. You, it doesn't work because you don't like it. Um, well, that's <laughs> kind of what I did with my book, the latter approach. But that's all right. You can. You so can I'm trying to. Fair. So, so, so Damiani, I think, I think he succeeds, which is why I don't like his book, um, because he's, he's makes this case for, um, for the value of liturgy and and whatnot, but he does so in a way that I think he cuts some corners historically, especially. Um, and that was something that Weber did, I, I believe, as well, in that with um, Weber's coming out of the liturgical renewal movement, especially, mm -hmm. and uh, folks like Dom Gregory Dix, um, a famous uh, liturgist and whatnot. And what, what I see happening and what others have, have seen happening is that there's kind of a, a pick and choose of what you a picking and choosing of history um, and and liturgical history and an assumption that uh, folks like Thomas Cranmer and, and other reformers that it's, it's a very, I guess it's a very modern approach of thinking that they didn't have as much, um, they didn't have the Dead Sea Scrolls or they didn't, I mean, they, they didn't have as much stuff to draw from. And if they did, they would have, they would have done things differently. Right. Um, but I've heard that about uh, later on, you know, Gregory 
that Gregory Dix's liturgical scholarship had had some big problems with it, um, and that it was revisionistic in a certain to a certain extent. Um, uh, so, and that's yeah, and and so, and I think that, um, and I, I don't think that Damiani is trying to trying to kind of he's, he's not intentionally going with that, but I think it's um, it's a bit of an un unexamined um understanding of of liturgy um what what liturgy is for what liturgy does um what and what liturgy is based on um and so right. liturgy i mean just going going through a liturgical service is not of value unless there's something valuable about what you're doing liturgically um or an if there's an under underpinning of what is trying to be communicated liturgically. So uh, Zach Hicks, for example, um, liturgical scholar right now in Anglicanism just wrote a book about Thomas Cranmer. And he argues that Thomas Cranmer is concerned about justification by faith and everything he does goes through that screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what makes his liturgies valuable is that they're, they're trying to communicate this very important doctrine of the church. Well, you said when and, you, we were messaging each other um, prior to this episode, you said that the big problem you had with this book, Damiani's book, is that um, there there was no that uh, it, it was uh, you Damiani is making a case for worship uh, without any overarching theology. Yeah, you're saying with with someone like Zach Hicks, for instance, he sees and I see it too behind the prayer book uh, underneath underneath driving all of Cramner's words and and his and the tweaks and revisions Cramner made and the, what was the concern with the centrality of of well he had an overarching theology and justification plays a central part would be Zach Hicks you know the way yeah. he says it. um and that's not what Damiani is um or Damiani's not um really giving that much thought you know the historical media yeah he, he's the he's, prayer book comes he's, out of right um the doctrinal concerns that have are very connected to the liturgy right yeah he, he's con- damiani is convinced that liturgy is valuable in and of itself okay yeah and that's and, that's and, my big issue I, I don't mean to keep interrupting i'm sorry but that's my you, you get me going now because that's my i mean that's been my issue with um um a lot of if not distinctly Anglo-Catholic, a lot of their influence, a lot of their touch on Anglicanism is that liturgy is an end of its, is an end in itself. Um, and also you kind of saw, and you see this with a lot of Dix's scholarship from my understanding, which in the liturgical renewal, all these things that did have an influence on the 79 prayer book, which we use in the Episcopal Church. And I like the 79 prayer book, so I don't want to take in wrong, like as far as right to and stuff. But um there was this emphasis that it's all about like the space, the space and the ritual and the action yeah. and yeah. unspoken things, right? Um, which just sounds like it comes out of some contemplative monk type of thing, you know. And I'm not, <laughs> but it it seems like that's that received all this emphasis now, and being too wordy is now all of a sudden being too doctrinal or or whatever yeah. or 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 li- limiting and, and kind of yeah taking up taking up space uh, our, our words are taking up space that i mean we should be listening for the spirit or something like that yeah yeah and um 
so I don't know. I, I imagine without reading Damiani's book, I imagine he's, it, you just kind of got that sense in there of that. Yeah. And, and it, and I think it's like I said, it's not intentional. Um, yeah. and, and it sounds, it sounds good. Um, and most of it, most of what he talks about also, interestingly enough, isn't, isn't really, ang I mean, he's an Anglican priest, but he's not talking about the Anglican tradition. He's just talking about liturgy broadly, um, and I think there's also I think it, I think it's part of the part and parcel of the same issue, but for him, and I think and this ties this will lead in well to my next book. Oh, I mean, I'll give you a chance to talk, but um, <laughs> but there's there's this idea that uh, the Amer American evangelicalism already has the theology right. Mm just need to live it out in a different way. So, so he's kind of, you're, what you're saying, if I'm understanding, he's kind of like uh, jumping to the other extreme. He's running as far away as he can from uh, what he came out of. Um, yeah. You know, where having a dead set theology and at least the way it's done in like American evangelicalism is not, is not always healthy. Um, yeah. And it's very, can be very unhealthy and destructive. And so I, mean, I don't, I don't blame the getting away from that part, but yep. Yep. going, going to, well, no, theology just comes about organically and uh, uh, through osmosis um, once the liturgy does its thing. I'm not over on that end either. And that's what yep. I sense in a lot of modern Anglican. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> and I think that's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's going from one extreme to the other and which, which a lot, I mean, Weber argues is very, is very appealing. Um, like this is what, this is what evangelicals need. We just need a, a different way of kind of living out our, our experience of our theology. But I've, I found, and a, a lot of times that what ends up happening then is the Anglican tradition or, or kind of a, a broadly liturgical-ish kind of tradition ends up serving as a halfway house um from you, you you're you're escaped from an evangelical so this north american mega church non-denominational evangelicalism and you've discovered this this liturgical tradition that um i mean there's i'm I, i'm in it so i can say it but i mean anglican and episcopal liturgical tradition can be very sloppy mm -hmm. um at least compared to uh, seemingly compared to like Rome or, or yeah. Constantinople, I mean, the Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. And so what is, is the discovering of, of liturgy as the be all end all, but if the liturgy is the be all end all, well, Roman Catholicism does liturgy better than, than any Protestants do. I mean, oh. Eastern Orthodoxy does liturgy better than, than any Protestants do. I may so, differ. I think Eastern Orthodoxy does. I don't know about Rome. I think Rome. Well, okay. I think, I think they're a hot mess. But that's, <laughs> I mean, again, it's, it's what is, what is Leo liturgy and what is it trying to do? But if you want that experience, I mean, what I, what I, what I, uh, what I'm concerned that I would have is you're trading one type of experience mm -hmm. the mega church personality driven um north american evangelicalism for another experience right and and both at the extremes both are very both are very hollow yeah um, yeah and and yet that's something that i think is kind of is 
well, based on the fact that Aaron Damiani is writing very similar stuff to what Robert Weber did 40 years ago, I mean, it's still still happening. It's so. still happening this year. And I mean, part of what we do on this podcast is to show that there's a middle way between those. It's a vast middle, of course, but there's between those two extremes, uh, the Reformation has a different ethos. And that's what yeah. we try to and you have to have, and, and so you have to have a theology underpinning your your worship experience, yeah. um, and and that's what both both of those are lacking, and that's what I um, like my coming from. I mean, Aaron Damiani and I are both are very similar kind of uh, right. similar I mean, stories. You came, you find your way to Anglicanism from that world, yeah, yeah, but that wasn't what the. The kind of physical liturgy wasn't a, wasn't attractive to me, and right. wouldn't have been attractive. It's, it's still not attractive to me in a lot of ways. But um, what was attractive was the was the theology of the Anglican tradition of the reformers, and then seeing how that plays out. That's that's the only way that that the liturgy is is meaningful or helpful or anything. Yeah. Uh, it's, so yeah, the Moeller story liturgy is not helpful in and of itself or meaningful right. in and of itself. Is my would be my qualm with uh, with that book. So. Um, yeah, I hear you. So uh, the title again for our listeners, and I'll go into my Earth, Earth filled with heaven, finding life in liturgy, sacraments, and other ancient practices of the church. Okay, and that's um, Zach's dislike. And now we're gonna go into no my bueno. dislike. Um, so my dislike. Uh, I got to even see what the title of that book was. Oh, so I have Logos uh, for, you know, software. Yep. It's helpful for uh, maybe a lot of our listeners use it, but self-help, that's uh, software that's useful for, um, I guess, looking at, it, it's just a helpful, uh, what's the word? Not, not a template, but um, just um, an interface of how you, you can like, yeah pull up passages from scripture theology texts um and anyways helpful software and when i got the package um that i actually and it's free so to subscribe to uh it's just different products you can pay for it to get downloaded but when you sign up for it you get a lot of free stuff and i was just i don't know why i think it was i think i was going through new testament resources on there and part of this was because of my where i served uh the last year and a half at a at Ascension where I taught, um, you know, I taught a New Testament class. So I was just kind of pulling up some basic, I was trying to find some like New Testament textbooks on there because I have all these ones for free just to like, you know, anything I could glean from yeah. them and, and use. And and I came across and I found myself reading it because I was like, because um, on one end I found it uh, an interesting read, but I just wholeheartedly disagreed with uh, what, whatever this author took whatever the where, every direction this author took so in the book is paul and his world interpreting the new testament in its context by helmut keister uh, and helmut keister is a german scholar i think he died several years ago and um you know he taught at uh harvard and uh he taught at some other you know big time school in the states but he was trained in germany and and um but you know so i i'm just going to read you this quote um 
and this is i'm just going to read this quote for you and i just, I just want to see your reaction uh <laughs> i pulled up my logos uh Quote, here is what I imagine ha happened after the death of Jesus. The disciples and friends of Jesus would have gathered again after Jesus had died and had been buried. What did they do then? They certainly did not form a committee that was charged to collect and write down everything that they could remember to gather with pencil in hand like good journalists, including further information from eyewitnesses. Rather, the friends and disciples of Jesus did what they, you see, I'm like reading this in a condescending voice, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> rather, the friends and disciples of Jesus did what they had always done in the company. They gathered together, read the, read the scriptures, sang the Psalms, and prayed as they broke the bread and blessed the cup. When they did this, they realized that Jesus was mysteriously present among them. Dun, dun, dun. What do you think about that, Zach? <laughs> do I need to go any farther <laughs> with this book? That's exactly what I would have done. <laughs> It's kind of like the, uh, it's like an academic version of Spong, at least that one. And um, Keister is no Spong. He's a, he's a very accomplished New Testament scholar. Um, and I guess during his time at Harvard, he um, was very, unlike a lot of New Testament scholars, Keister was actually very much, um, he was always, you know, in constant dialogue with the classics department, um, with uh the systematic department. I mean, he, it was really, um, um, it was, I guess, a, and it, he was there during a time when Harvard actually had, you know, some, some, you know, good, some leading yeah. and, uh, you know, reputable, uh, you know, Heike Olbermann was there at the time. And, uh, but I, you know, I was just reading this cause I just wanted to, I was, I was trying to put some stuff together, finding good content to kind of like, you know, um, pare down into the you know high school version of the new testament class i taught yeah, yep oh my gosh i what i the, the the passage this is not holy writ the paragraph that i just read from that um it's it just kind of tells you all you really need to know about this yep. but um you know so yeah it was it was just a lot of um and it made me realize um and again, I don't know why I spent my time finished because it's a big book. Um, some interesting information, though, about you know, uh, you know, late Second Temple and then early AD. You know, that whole time period yeah. in which the New Testament arises from. It's got interesting historical things, um, but it's just the epitome of like, um, you know, working from a com complete historical critical assumption yeah. on everything um it was it was almost yeah like, there's and there's other i mean that's that's the i mean when you there, there's other people who can do that that second temple judaism stuff for you and not screw up the resurrection i mean right so and there's, uh, there's, right and um you know i think uh you know i could or i could just read josephus if i wanted to i don't know yeah. <laughs> i want to go primary works but um so i'm like reading this and and uh it, it just seemed oh and there's this really bizarre chapter in there where he talks about the divine froze up on my end sorry uh did i freeze up on your end yeah but it was probably my fault but yeah okay uh did, did i tell you about uh, you said just you said you could read just josephus that was basically last okay. thing and then i froze up okay so then i so yeah so uh there was a bizarre chapter in there as well about something this concept of the divine man 
and so basically this is this was Keister's argument if I'm remembering I don't have it pulled up in the reading um, but I'm just going to try to paraphrase best I can and summarize best I can what he said about this divine man concept so he basically says that in um, you know ancient Greco-Roman culture and in their mythology there was this like concept of a divine man which represented everything strong and valorous I mean we think of like Orion and Hercules right so there's this like divine man thing and then us moderns are no better because we still have this divine man uh, idea like we um, you know and there's some we can't, we can't get away from it right and there's some valuable critique to what he's there's some value to this critique that he's getting at because because it's like we um we we prop up you know the person that's supposed to be the ideal citizen or the ideal leader right and then we shy away from our you know the vulnerabilities we all carry and and it's just um um you know an ultimately you know destructive thing to do and we've done it throughout all human history yeah well the new testament writings um by um as you know they talk of jesus of his likeness and equality to god and in the early church where we 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 see the understanding of the early church is that jesus is divine that's just he calls it i think he even uh, calls it propaganda at one point or another it's just um you know the christians basically just bought in to the myth of a divine man and that's yeah. you know and um, you name it. in order to and he th and, and i don't think he's not doing it to like tear down the church but that's all i just think that he he ultimately it's what he's doing because um basically we, we need to shoo we need to we need to get away from this idea and that um jesus's humanity is um what uh is really uh was what we should focus on yeah you know and it's just it... and it goes i mean it goes back to that i mean it goes back to what we we're talking about in eschatology though i think and i mean um uh fitzsimmons allison's um i mean great line i mean the cruelty of heresy i mean right it's, so like he's yeah okay i'm not trying to undermine everything that the church has ever taught taught but but that then you true, yeah. then you do and it's like well where does that where does that leave you um mm -hmm. and there, there was that article a few i think it was during the pandemic maybe and it new york times i think it was new york times uh, or the atlantic so, something along those lines and it was this um woman who was writing and she was talking about that i think she's a psychologist and she gives advice to her or she has non-religious parents who, who come in and say like well how do i talk to my children about death mm -hmm. and her her she said lie to them tell them there's an afterlife tell them there's everything's going to work out in the end tell them I mean, even if you don't believe it at all even if you don't that's it's that's actually more beneficial it, like that was that was and she's like it, it's it's to our benefit to believe in an afterlife uh, mm -hmm. essentially mm -hmm. and which i thought was just fascinating um but it's yeah it's like this okay great you've now told us you've now destroyed christianity now what do you want us to do um if, if right. this is if, right. if jesus I mean, it's it's first corinthians 15 if christ is not raised well screw it right well and, he, and again keister already just as we 
clearly denies the resurrection in that one, you know, paragraph. Yeah. Um, but this is, and I'm just, so let me read you this part. So, um, so this idea that we need to get away from, you know, the divine man myth. And then he, so he contrasts Jesus as a human to uh, the, you know, the importance of seeing Jesus as human. This is what he says. He says, um, you know, the reference to perfection that Jesus has, you will be perfect as your have, father in heaven is perfect characteristically follows up upon the commandment to love one's enemies. Perfection is giving oneself rather than becoming oneself. So here he's saying, you know, divine man is about like building yourself up, you know, yeah, you need to give yourself away. Then he says on this basis, the Christian message uh, based on, you know, Jesus as a human was capable of founding communities of people from all classes, races, and genders. Um, the concept of the divine human being has been radically reinterpreted the truly divine human beings are those who give themselves for others even to the death on the cross because god has appeared in jesus neither the most powerful nor the most virtuous but a self-giving love god is not power rather god is love well it's like i agree like there it's almost like a half truth at work right it's yeah. like because um you know i agree that uh by god be taking on flesh he has radically subverted um man's idea of what a god is or man's yeah. idea of what a God should be. Um, you know, that's the power of the incarnation. God embracing a cross is the power of the scandal that we Christians present. Um, but um, I don't think that needs to be taken to, in a direction that says, that rejects like um, divinity yeah, <laughs> and understanding that Jesus, as God, still has all power and is sovereign. Um, it yeah. it it's it was just a weird, you know, critique, and he's trying to like tie it into this modern day society and saying that we need to be self giving. Well, I agree with that, but it was just like, yeah, <laughs> it was like just the yeah, was not the, the cure. The cure is worse than the poison. You're right. So let's uh, go on to on a more positive note. And by the way, that, that book for anyone, uh, and if you have Logos, you may have it for free. Paul in his world, interpreting the New Testament in its context by um, Helmut Keister. Yeah, so so they're, they're, they're the books that we didn't care for. So back to sandwiching <laughs> this. Two, two goods, one bad, put the bad in the middle so we forget about the bad and in the positive note. Um, and the, uh, let's, um, because of time, let's, and I'm sorry, I know we were going to do three likes. Um, yeah. Do you want to each do one more like? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll combine my two into one. How about that? Sounds good. Uh, I will be, I'll do two as well, and I'll just combine it and be quick with it. Yeah. Sounds good. So, <laughs> so my, my last like is, uh, it's called Children of the Promise, The Case for Baptizing Infants. Mm -hmm. It's uh, by Jeffrey Bromley. Um, so, so as I mean, I've said a few times now, um, not raised in liturgical tradition, not raised in uh, not raised in, in Baptist churches, but but churches that did not baptize infants, and uh, that was one of the things that was hardest for me to wrap my head around in, in coming into the Anglican tradition. Like, okay, we baptize babies. Why do we baptize babies? Why in kind of biblical case uh, that type of thing? And and I've, I've been convinced for a few years now, but I'm always whenever whenever I see something with a book with the subtitle the case for baptizing infants or why you should baptize your children something like that i always pick it up and read it because i i hadn't come across a book that i thought it 
did a good job of explaining that. And it, I, it's I, a I hard wanna... argument. I'll admit that as a it's a hard argument to make. I mean, I've I've had Baptist non-denom and fundamentalist fr uh, friends. Uh, my whole life, I've been uh, either Lutheran or Anglican, and then um, and I've and that was always been the big thing. Like, well, so I can almost get on board, but what about yeah. baptizing babies? What's your rationale yeah. for that? Yeah, I'm kind of just caught, you know, like a deer in headlights. I'm like, well, we've been doing yeah, it and, for a long and time. I think for me, part of what happens. Um, oh, you're frozen again. Or did I freeze again? Um, um, now you froze. Uh, can you hear me, Zach? Yep, I'll stop my video too. The last, um, the last thing I said was, um, I'm, I'm stuck like a deer in headlights. Yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't say anything after that. You got the deer okay. in headlights. Yeah, so so I'm always on the lookout for these books. Always, and and what I've found mm -hmm. is that uh, most most of the ones I've come across, um, it really comes down there. There's there's too many presuppositions uh, for somebody coming from an adult only baptism uh, baptism. Uh, there's it's circumcision baptism equals circumcision so and here's and it's like that's such a big jump like that's it, it that is a is, big jump yeah i mean that that's why that's where most people get stuck so you can't just start there and and i found that most a lot of these books because there's and, and this happens on both sides of the debate i mean I, I suppose if i'm reading books that we're arguing the other way it would be just as much but i've found a lot of these types of books to be very argumentative not not written in a in a very pastoral spirit um i think they've tried to be but they just they don't come across that way so so i picked up this book case uh, children of promise case for baptizing infants jeffrey bromley and in 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 my in my reading i think he does the best job of of making this case of making it a, a uh, making it clear making a making a clear biblical case for uh, why you should baptize infants and does it in a very pastorally sensitive way um it's just he's just winsome so so after i read it um i thought like wow that was a really good book i should find out more about this guy and um it ends up that he was he, he's an anglican uh church, church of england guy um the, the book was written in 1979 um but it's actually a uh, consolidating of the work that he did as his PhD thesis, which that is called Baptism and the Anglican Reformers. Um, and that, um, so I, I suggest both of them to you, but I thought it was really interesting. It struck me that um, part of the story I tell is being attracted to reform theology um, as, as a teenager, especially, but finding, finding the the scripture that it was uh, that I was presented with made sense to me, mm -hmm. but the but the people who were making the case didn't make sense to me because they always seemed very argumentative, always uh, very sure of themselves, not very pastoral in how they kind of will just just believe this. Um, and I know that's not true of everyone, but that was part of what I discovered in the Anglican tradition was it, um, it's very um there could be a good argument you're saying but it, it yeah it's it's all it's uh, most people's reason yeah it's kind of just unexamined it's like well just believe it you know? yeah yeah and, and and not only just unexamined but very um dogmatic or very um yeah and so well, what's Bromley's case 
I mean, basically, in this, as as far as I can tell, I mean, I don't, I don't think um, infant baptism makes much sense outside of a, a uh, covenant covenantal theology. Um, I mean, and, and, I mean that covenantal theology is uh, is completely antithesis to a um, um, dispensational theology that I that I grew up with, um, and and so. It's he he just makes a case for covenant theology essentially, and uh, but it, he does so in a way that it is winsome, that is um, scripturally based. Um, I don't have the book in front of me. I, it was so good that I immediately gave it to somebody else to read, and they haven't given it back yet. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm working from from memory, but um, and it's it's a little bit longer. I mean, some of the other books like Brian Chapel, I think, who's a Presbyterian. He has a book for why uh, the case for baptizing infants um, that's like 30 pages long. Um, this one's 132 pages. It's not something that you can just kind of immediately hand to somebody and say, oh, you can read this in 10 minutes and be convinced. Um, it's a little bit longer, but it's it's written at a popular level, a, a very pastoral way. Yeah. Um, and it's and it, it, because it's. It, I think it's even more helpful because it's from an Anglican perspective. And I think just his way of going about his theology is more, is more pastoral. Um, and, and so is a little bit more winsome, but, but yeah, the children, children, of the promise, the case for baptizing infants. And then, and then if you're, if you're intrigued by that or, or want a little bit more of a historical understanding of that, his his bigger book his his academic book is pop baptism in the anglican reformers and there he talks i mean it's four sections he says um he starts off by talking about you know what is baptism who are the participants in baptism um what is the the the, the right or the ceremony of baptism what's going on there and then grace what how is how do we understand grace in that and it's very methodical. I mean, it's, I mean, chapter one, and then you have point A, point B, point C, point D, and then point, I mean, right. um, so it's, it's not hard to kind of wrap your head around. He does, I mean, even though he's writing for an academic level, he, he can walk you through it the same way that he does in the popular level. So, well, so and yeah, the author of that is um, Jeff Bromley for, um, and for our listeners, uh, Zach and I were talking like before the episode and I was, I was like, wait, who's the author? And he said, Jeff Bromley. And um, I, I've come across Bromley uh, numerous times for, um, because he's very interestingly also a major translator of German works. Um, yeah, I would say he's done just as much, his translations are just as significant as his own works. Um, he, for a lot of us may know the multi-volume, you know, theological dictionary, the New Testament, the big blue books uh, by Kittle or compiled yep. by Gerhard Kittle. Um, Bromley was a translator of that. Bromley translated several of Bart's works. Um, and he also translated Pannenberg's uh, three volumes. So it's just very interesting. Whenever I come across like an Anglo theologian who knows, who's very, you know, in touch with the, the German side, that's, that's always interesting because uh, sometimes they, there's a gulf there but yeah yeah and he seems he seems like a i mean seems like a fascinating guy um and maybe maybe he's worth somebody digging into more but i mean he like i said he's from he's an anglican clergy clergyman and he's writing about 
obviously has a very pastoral side, has a very theological side in that he's translated all this German. He ends up in the U.S. Um, or sorry, yeah, he, he well, first he ends up at the uh, English Episcopal Church in Edinburgh, Scotland, and and then he ends up in the U.S. teaching at Fuller Seminary, um, which is. I mean, it's not not kind of Moody Bible Institute, but not not, not somewhere you, ex- you would have expect. I would expect uh, somebody like him to end up at. Right. Um, and so he's very multi multi dimensional kind of kind yeah. of guy. Um, so yeah, interesting guy. So, but uh, we will so go your last one. My last one. Um, so my last one. I uh, enjoyed it a lot. Read it over the summer. And it's from 2015. Uh, it's Faith Alone, What the Reformers Taught and Why It Still Matters. So um, this was part of a five-part series called The Solas. The five solas are the five principles yeah. which define what, you know, for Protestantism is. I think most of our listeners know that. You know, there's Sola Fide, which is Faith Alone. That's what this book was on, um, uh, The Doctrine of Justification. Uh, this book by Thomas Schreiner is very, it's a very accessible read. Um, and it basically lays out, uh, the teaching, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, he, he like spends some time saying what it is, um, in the first part. And then the rest of it's basically him engaging with all the, um, relevant passages from scripture that speak of salvation. Um, especially, you know, as you can imagine, Paul's letters, but but really throughout all the Bible. And um, Schreiner makes a case that without being without being anachronistic about it, I mean, he's really a careful scholar. He's a New Testament scholar, which is interesting. He surveys a lot of church history, and he's a New Testament guy. Um, and he knows, and I'll get to this in a moment. He he knows Reformation and especially okay. especially Luther scholarship real well. Um, but uh, but he's basically making the case that the 16th century reformers, what they taught is a faithful reading and rendering of what scripture says about salvation. Um, so, yeah, do you know Schreiner at all, uh, Zach? I don't know if you read I, it. I've, yeah, I've come across him a few times. He has a he has a one really helpful book that I um, forget what it's called, but it's, it's kind of an intro to uh, studying the New Testament and um, that I was introduced to by um, Wes Hill and in seminary and uh, have revisited that a few times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, uh, he's written a lot um, and it's not yeah. all just been, you know, biblical, biblical study stuff. And, uh, but, but he's done his fair share on that as, as well. I mean, I use, I think he wrote a hand called the handbook on acts and Paul's letters. That was really, that's really good for, for a preacher or teaching. I think maybe that's, that, that might be the one that I'm thinking of. Um, yeah. yeah, that that one, um, that's really good for like preachers and Christian educators because it's a it's a concise, accessible, um, you know, textbook in a way on Paul's letters in the book of Acts. Um, I won't spoil too much of this book, this the other book I'm talking about by him. Um, but, he, you know, and, and I think like it's important to know he's more on the conservative side or he's he belongs to a conservative strand of like yeah you know baptist so he's not going to say or do anything that will you, you i get the sense he's not gonna you know he's he's careful not to get in trouble with his co-religionists but honestly i think the book was carefully weighed um for the most part i think faithfully represented opposing views 
Um, he tackles the new perspective on Paul, which, you know, for our listeners, our episode with Stephen um, Chester uh, several episodes ago uh, breaks down exactly what the new perspective is. Uh, Stephen Chester on that talks about what the value he finds in it, but where he thinks um, um, it goes wrong. But basically the idea of a that um, the reformers read Paul wrong um, and N.T. Yeah. Wright and James Dunn were, were big proponents of that, though they're, it's not a monolithic scholarly movement, yeah. but it's yeah. basically, you know, falls under the umbrella term of the new perspective. But Schreiner kind of takes that on. And and I want to share this quote on what Schreiner says about um, regard to that. He says, I don't doubt that the inclusion of Gentiles apart from the boundary markers was an important issue for Paul. But the boundary markers issues must be read against the broader backdrop of Paul's thought, where he rejects righteousness by works fundamentally, unquote. And I like that because I think it's as clear and as our, you know, as articulate and that right and done and people who argue for the new perspective are, I think they, I feel like they miss, they ignore that backdrop, you know, that, yeah. um, whether it's in Galatians where, yeah, Paul's is addressing the situation of, you know, justification. He's, he's talking about it because it means that the kingdom of God is open to Gentiles. He is focusing on a more ethnic, you know, situation there. But when he gets to Romans, um, he's, he's talking about it. He, he's clearly and plainly talking about it broadly that, um, you know, Paul is clearly, in opposition to the idea that our works um, contribute to our salvation. And it's not just, yeah. you know, Torah work, like observing Torah. He's talking about any just, it's, it's, it's the complete idea of us. Personally. Yeah. It's keeping the main, the main thing, the main thing. Right. right. They, that's, and it, I, mean, I think it happens. And when we talk about, um, um, atonement theories too sometimes i mean you kind of yeah. like a little a little pet atonement theory that you that you want to be like the controlling the controlling thing and it and you, it just doesn't work uh, right right well it is yeah because it's like um it's part of it's part of what's going on but it's not the the overarching right and but yeah i i think you know substitution atonement's correct but i also think chris's victor is correct i mean yeah. <laughs> It's yep. mentions to what to what Jesus work on the cross says, right? And um, and same with justification, it has many layers and dimensions to it. But um, so uh, but yeah, I'll refer to listeners to that Stephen Chester episode if they're if they're more interested in that topic. But I'll just say I like this book by Schreiner. Um, I, I think uh, you know our our for our Lutheran listeners, obviously this broader Protestant principle of sola fide uh, in its Protestant articulation comes from Luther. Um, uh, and so I just, for our Lutheran listeners, I think they can really appreciate Schreiner, even though he's a Baptist, you know, whatever he's, he's yeah. really engaged in Luther scholarship. Yeah. Um, he yeah. cites Wangert, he cites, uh, Bernhard Losey, uh, Robert Kolb. Um, he's, he's, uh, his chapter on like, if you don't know anything about Luther, like if someone doesn't know anything about Luther, they could literally just read this, the, like the chapter in the beginning of the book where he just he writes a chapter on luther before he gets okay. to doctrine justification before he goes anywhere else right and like he like 
someone who knows next to nothing about Luther could read that section of the book and come away with a firm understanding of everything Luther was about theologically. It's actually huh. really, does a really good job. Um, yeah. So I really, I'm just like, you know, because it's like you have this different sub-disciplines. You have the biblical guys over here and you got the theology guys over here. And I just yeah. like applaud someone who can like, who who can, you know, do the homework and and get an understanding across those, you know, barriers we sometimes like put up you know between the between the lot but it's a good book uh again the title is uh faith alone the doctrine of justification what the reformers taught and why it still matters by thomas schreiner with a forward by john piper interestingly so huh. um but yeah it's good so very good good yeah so um uh, this is a, oh, and my third one I never got to. <laughs> it is, and I, you know, I had been cheating because I didn't finish it, but it's, <laughs> it's related to the note I ended on. I finally got around to starting Roland Bayton's popular bio of Luther. Um, <laughs> that was the big bestseller from seven years ago. It's still like the standard <laughs> popular bio. Finally got around to it. I was like, oh, it's 99 cents on the Kindle store, at least like some, <laughs> some off publisher edition of it. So I just got it and I just, I spent a few days over kind of the Christmas uh, break from, it was kind of a, you know, it was a break for me because I was a teacher, even though I was still yeah. services on Christmas Eve. Eve. But um, yeah, it was, I read through, I read, I, it was a fast read because it's enjoyable. Um, it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's very good. So yeah. Um, so Roland Dayton's Here I Stand, I think it's called. So Okay. Very good. Well, Zach, well, thanks, thanks, thanks for thanks for letting me uh, let me ramble about the books I've been reading. That's, oh, uh, thanks for letting me ramble. I um, we had some good conversation, I think, on on these books, and uh, uh, we 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 had some interruptions. Each of us did, and we had some technical glitches. And so, I apologize for our listeners uh, that you may or may not even notice because I may be able to edit and <laughs> polish it all up. But if not, um, know that we are we are human. Two guys sitting by their computers. And life in parish ministry, and we're and we're in the parish. We're both of us literally in our parish offices, and so people come by our door, and and our listeners, I know know that is important. So, uh, but we appreciate you listening in, and and uh, and putting up with us, and and taking interest in what we have to say, uh, because it's uh, you know this is I'm blessed to be able to do this podcast, and we're blessed to have to have had Zach on again for for his yeah, third appreciate time. it. So we'll definitely have you on for a fourth time and, you know, some. Yeah, is this like uh, Saturday Night Live? Do I get a jacket or something after I've done like five times or whatever? Oh my gosh, so. uh, we should do that. I think, you know, we had t-shirts for a while. And, Maybe a pin, uh, yeah. We had t-shirts that got canceled after like a day. Um, not that <laughs> the cancel culture canceled, but like it was, we went through some, I think it's Tee Public, And I didn't know, like, if you go through them, they will like, if you don't sell so many in like a day they'll just drop you from oh <laughs> <laughs> so we there were but before that happened steven and i were able to order two and uh limited edition yeah and so we literally have rare they might be worth money i don't know there you go someday yeah, but that was back when it was it, we, we kind of restyled and got a different cover art and it's kind of rebranded as a you know reformation me uh podcast not that we didn't always have that in a sense, but 
So that's the old school shirt. It's the one with the, the steeple on it. And it says, yeah, you better Protestant hold, historical hold, hold on to that. <laughs> Sorry. You better hold, <laughs> hold on, on to that. that. For sure. Yeah. Well, Zach, thank you. Uh, God bless. I, I know you got things to do. And uh, thanks for having me. So uh, looking forward to uh, yeah. paying God attention bless. what else you guys are up to. So.